Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Eric Marcus. Eric is a journalist, author, and the host of Making Gay History, the podcast. Growing up, the books that he could find about being gay were disturbing. This inspired him later to set out to write the books he wished that had been on the shelves when he was a young person. To do that, he began interviewing people and started to uncover the history of our queer ancestors. In the process, he recorded these interviews and learned that ultimately, most of them rejected what society said about them, they followed their passions and instincts, and they helped change the world. 30 years later, after writing the book, Eric would carry the torch again, bringing these stories to life in a whole new way. Let's hear Eric's story. Good afternoon, Eric. I am so grateful to be here with you today just to get to know you a little bit better and to share your story with some of our guests and listeners. So thank you for being here. Delighted, Jeff. Thanks. This afternoon, you are in New York, uh, not too far from where you grew up, no? Well, uh, New York City term, 17 miles is a long way. Yeah, I I live 17 (laughs) miles west of where I grew up. I live on West 20th Street in New York City. Uh, which is about a mile south of Times Square. Ah, great. The area that you grew up, that was Queens? Yeah, I, Queens is huge. It's made up of lots of different neighborhoods. I grew up in a neighborhood called Kew Gardens, and I uh, often refer to it as the Iowa of Queens because <laughs> I, it might as well have been Iowa, even though I was on a subway line that would, would have taken me right to Greenwich Village. I didn't see Greenwich Village until I was, uh, after I graduated high school when I was 17. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I can see how, <laughs> you can see how interested I was in the world. I mean, I'm shocked <laughs> looking back, thinking, how did, how is that possible? I didn't see Central Park until after I got to college. That's amazing. It's uh, yeah. like I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. I remember being in high school and I would take the train over to, to Chicago, probably like maybe my junior year. And I remember talking to people my senior year that had never left Indiana. And to me, that just seemed, just couldn't understand that. Um, yeah, yeah. When I was uh, after, after college, I worked as a tour guide for a short while at Rockefeller Center. And often we had student groups from Brooklyn, especially kids who lived in underserved communities. They had never been in an elevator before. And they lived in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. You grew up in an area that, from what I understand, there was some refugees and some World War II survivors. Can we talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah. Kew Gardens was sometimes uh, referred to as the Upper West Side of Queens. It was a neighborhood that attracted a lot of refugees from World War II, people who came before the war and after. And Kew Gardens was also a destination for a lot of people, principally from Germany and Austria. So a lot of my neighbors were refugees and their kids who were my age, grew up with parents who whose first language was German or Yiddish. And my family was not, my family came earlier in the early 20th century. So we were were slightly odd by comparison to the rest. But they tended to be very well-educated people, middle to upper middle class people who then moved to Queens, to Kew Gardens, Queens, and lived in much diminished circumstances from how they had lived in Vienna or in Berlin uh, before the war. But it wasn't at all uncommon to see people who had tattoos on their arms with with numbers mm-hmm. from when they were in the concentration camps. That was just part of the world in which I grew up. But there, there was a horrifying, well, it's all horrifying, but there's a, the most horrifying aspect to it for me was uh, at Hebrew school. I was sent to Hebrew school after regular public school a couple of days a week. And if we were misbehaving, the rabbi would sometimes say, six million died, you're lucky to be alive. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. So it was yeah. you know, to use the Holocaust as a cudgel and, and as a child to not have a full understanding other than having seen some of the pictures of concentration camps and bodies stacked up. That was a, a horrible way to introduce the Holocaust to kids. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, so I'm curious, you know, growing up in the neighborhood that you grew up in with all of the refugees and survivors, was there any sort of sense that you were surrounded by people who were persecuted against? Did you feel that energy within the neighborhood and within the community? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. Um, No, and I really didn't have a sense until I was older of what had happened to the people I knew. Hmm. Actually, just about probably 20 years ago, I was reading an article in a magazine called The Cooperator about uh, co-ops. It was real estate. And there was a feature about a treasurer of a co-op in Queens. And it was uh, Harry Loeb, who was the live next door. His son, Richard Loeb, was my age. We were best friends. Mm -hmm. And 
it was it, it was a story about how he was on that famous voyage of the dam the ship that had uh refugees jewish refugees from europe turned away from the us turned away from cuba and sent back and oh. many if not most and i don't remember the full story anymore uh died but uh harry loeb and his mother managed to they w- wound up in the netherlands wound up getting on another ship and coming to the us and then Harry Loeb enlisted in the military, turned around, and went back to Europe to occupy Germany. I knew none of this growing up. Wow. But as I've come to learn from the work I do now, I do a Holocaust podcast as well as my gay podcast, many and most of the, the survivors uh, and refugees did not speak of their experiences at all for decades, if they ever spoke about their experiences at all. So mm-hmm. no, I grew up in a in a, a middle-class community. My Parents were working class economically, but they were big intellectuals. So I didn't have any sense of how people's lives were upended and the kinds of trauma many of them experienced. Hmm. I'm curious, why do you think people did not talk about it? Actually, I know I know why from 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 a lot of the testimony I've listened to, people didn't want to burden their their children. They hmm. didn't want to relive the experiences. And many of them were told when they were young people, just after they were, were uh, liberated uh, at the end of the war, they were told that nobody would believe them. So they shouldn't speak of it. Wow. I've never yeah. thought of that that way. Yeah. Wow. There, was, well, there was one story that one of the podcast episodes that we did with a teenager when he arrived, a young teenager when he arrived in New York, and he was determined that he would tell everybody what he had lived through. And he had really lived, he was in a slave labor camp. His father was killed. And he was uh, in the schoolyard, a bunch of kids. He went to a, a Hebrew school, a Jewish full-time private school, and was telling one of the stories. And one of the kids in the group said, oh, you, want, you want to tell us one of your, your bullshit stories again? And he said he didn't say another word about his experience for decades. Because it wow. told, just to have the whole experience invalidated, it would actually do more harm than actually speaking about it. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and the stories were so, the, the experiences were so shocking and unbelievable that they were unbelievable. You know, yeah. that if you hadn't lived it, people, people couldn't accept that this was done to other humans by humans. Yeah. 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 So I knew I knew none of that. I had I had an odd growing up experience because my parents were odd people. Both, as I have come to understand, were mentally ill. But that actually, that, that probably, I don't know if that had anything to do with their their political or religious religious interests. But my mother joined. Uh, she had an Indian guru uh, and mm. joined joined what I came to think of as a cult in the 1960s. So living in this Jewish neighborhood in an apartment house, my mom would go out twice a week and dressed in a sari and go to her meetings with uh, Sri Chinmoy and lots of other disciples. So she was with them for I don't know, six or seven years, eight years, before they threw her out. But obviously she, she was seeking something and she found it there for a while, it sounds like. My parents were both seekers. They were always looking for something. They discovered yoga very early on. So I was, uh, I, I'm so straight-laced and so vanilla that most people wouldn't guess that I went to what was called a Theosophical Society camp. The Theosophical Society was a quasi-religion, is... I was at an ashram for one summer in upstate New York. I'm forgetting the name of the Indian guru who led that one. So I knew about meditation and vegetarianism and brown rice and all all of that (laughs) long long before I arrived at Vassar College, where a lot of my classmates were just discovering brown rice and being vegetarians and uh, yoga. Um, And all I wanted was a nice middle class life and a house in in the suburbs. I I didn't have a lot of imagination in those days. You know, it just gives us a little bit of a a peek into what it was like in your family. Were you closer to maybe your father or your mother, or was there one that you kind of gravitated towards? Or I was was very close to my mother. My dad worked nights, so we hardly saw him. He worked for the post office, he loaded bags of mail on trucks. He actually had a, a master's degree in sociology and worked briefly for the New York Department of, of Education, but he was uh, he had bipolar disorder, but that was not diagnosed at the time and could not deal with people. So he loaded bags of mail on trucks at night. So I didn't see him much until actually my parents separated when I was 10. And then I saw him every, I think it was every other weekend or every weekend, I now can't remember. But that, that was the time when we had the most time with him. Mm. And he was the fun parent. He was a lot <sighs> of fun, a lot of fun. My mother was a depressed person. She was not fun, but I was I was very close to her. And after my dad killed himself when I was twelve, um, I wound up much closer to my mother, and she depended upon me in ways that she shouldn't have, and that were not very healthy for me or for her. Oh, I'm sorry that uh, the loss of a, of a parent at that age. I, I um, 
how does a what does a twelve year old do? How how did you, was there any way that you've coped with that for yourself personally? The way I dealt with it is the way a lot of children deal with a death at that age. Is you and children deal with grief differently from adults. In many ways, I pretended it never happened. What made it complicated was that, um, well, and no one spoke of him. Because it was a suicide, it was kept secret. I knew it was a suicide. Nobody told me it was. I had overheard I overheard the initial call that came from my aunt. I put my ear to the keyhole of the kitchen door. My mother ushered me out. My aunt was, was my mother's sister-in-law. They didn't like each other. So she called on a Sunday morning. I knew something was up. I'd answered the phone. And so uh, when my mother closed the door to the kitchen, I put my ear to the keyhole, and I heard my mother say pills, and I heard her say hospital. And I knew my father was taking pills. I didn't know exactly what they were, but he had kept them on a high shelf in our kitchen for years to keep them away from from my brother, who always found his way into closets. Um, just an aside, my brother, uh, one, one day we came into the kitchen and all of the canned goods had been stripped of their labels. My, my mother, my mother wasn't home. My father, my mother had left us with our father and he, he always, he, he managed never to keep an eye on us. And so what he did is he put the labels back on all the cans, but not knowing what was in them. So periodically she'd open a can <laughs> thinking she was getting canned peas and they turned out to be canned carrots or something oh. else. And I never said anything. My dad never said anything. My brother certainly never said anything. Uh, don't disturb. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but so I didn't, I, because it was a suicide and I, and no one spoke of it. I thought it was something terrible. I didn't even tell anyone he died. So, wow. So I went, I was out of school. I went to school the next day after he died. So my mom sent me and uh, was out of school one day for the funeral. And that was it. I didn't, I wasn't dealing with it very well. Uh, At least I look back now and I I, uh, was a really, I was a top student. And that semester, I, my, my grades in math and science collapsed. And I was, I was in a special program for gifted kids, and I was threatened that if I didn't improve my grades the next semester, I would be out. And I didn't say anything. And I didn't connect the two things at the time. So my family dealt with my dad's suicide and my grief the way that most families would have dealt with it in those days, and, and many families do now. They see a kid who seems okay. I wasn't sent for counseling. Or we, we, we didn't know about those things. So I buried it. I buried it. I didn't. I didn't tell anybody. I mean, I remember a few years later, um, my friend Richard Katz said, um, "You know, you haven't talked about your dad in a long time. How's he doing?" Well, he's dead. I mean, I still have conversations with with very old friends who I haven't seen in a long time, and um, the subject of parents come up come, comes up, and and it turns out that they didn't know my dad killed himself. So I really must have kept it to myself for for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll it'll screw you up I, I, badly, um, and it yeah. did, and it did. You continued on with your education. You know, you foreshadowed that you went on to Vassar College. Yes, I went to public schools in New York City and went to uh, my high school. My junior high school was terrific. My my high school was a classic inner city, underserved uh, or underfunded public school. Not a great school, and so when I got to Vassar, I really struggled academically. I mean, I was one of the top students in my high school, but but that didn't say anything. Um, I discovered that there's a, there, that that uh, my education at Hillcrest High School was sub subpar compared to the private school education of, the, of most of the kids I met at, at Vassar, and also lots of them came from families that were affluent. Mine was not, and also people who um, had much broader lives than I did. And I came with my Queens accent. I sounded like Fran Drescher, who went to the same high school that I did. And I came with my disco era clothes, which very quickly disappeared because I wanted to fit in. Um, and it took, a, it took, the first semester was brutal, um, academically, socially, and I was just dealing with my sexuality. I had a girlfriend for two months thinking that I could go straight and had a boyfriend at the same time. Neither of them was very happy with me. Mm. Um, and by the end of the semester, I got so sick. Um, I was in the infirmary, couldn't finish my semester. I missed all of my exams. I, 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 I can't believe I'm getting into this corner with this story. But I, so I usually don't talk about this. But I um, was invited to go to the senior to, to the the winter formal dance with a senior, a young woman. And um, she insisted I come back to her room afterwards. And one thing that led to another, and I didn't know how to say no. And she just kept pushing things along. And it was traumatic. And I woke up the next day, I didn't sleep the whole night. And I just couldn't, I couldn't think, I should have thought to say, I'm sorry, I'm gay. And this isn't going to happen. Um, <laughs> but I was 17 years old, actually, I was just 18. And I was terrified of saying the truth. 
So I, uh, the next morning I had 102 fever and a rash from head to toe and wound up in the infirmary. Um, wow. And I, you know, I look back now, I think, oh, I, that, that makes sense. In those days, when you were really sick and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with you at the infirmary, they would send your blood sample to Albany, which was a big deal, the state capital. And it came back with nothing. But I was, I was really sick with the rash head to toe and with a fever. Yeah. And the only person who came to visit me was my ex-girlfriend. So it was, <laughs> it was a horrible first semester. I got home. I said to my mother, I am not going back to college. But she insisted that I yeah. go back. And I did. I did. Did you have a, a support system to you know talk through some of these things that you've experienced then? No. Um, there was one person I was in contact with. <laughs> my childhood is going to start sounding really horrible and creepy. Um, we had a neighbor, um, a reverend, who was a widower. We, we moved when I was 15 to a, a really nice neighborhood actually around the corner from the Trump family, believe it or not. And uh, a number of relatives had died and my mother had enough money to buy a house. So uh, this neighbor came by soon after we moved in. He was in a cow coat and a tie. And I thought, when I saw him through, through the window in the door, I, I, I thought, you know, who is this? And it was our neighbor, a couple of doors down. And he was, a, as he explained, he was a, a reverend. He was an Episcopalian reverend, 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 I should say, and a widower. And I thought, oh, for my mother. And my mother was thrilled that he showed an interest in me because, you know, nice to have a male role model. He had a, a great interest in me, but not the kind that you want. So I was, uh, he took a great interest in, in my sexuality and asked me lots of questions, leading questions, um, when he took me places to, when I was looking at colleges, to, he took me to see Yale and described how when he was at Yale, the, the, the swimming pool, you swam naked. He took me out to Fire Island. And he was really trying to bring me out. I don't know if that's, that phrase is used anymore with young people, but I was very cautious about how much I said. But once I got to college, he already he knew by then I was gay, and I had I'd explained that. So I would have late-night conversations with, with him by phone, and he would ask me to describe everything that was going on. And I didn't realize he was really getting off on, on that whole mm. thing. I mean, really, really living creepy stuff. You know, living vicariously through, through you almost. In yeah, a, in a, he, he never, never put a hand on me. Yeah. Um, Never put a hand on me. And he introduced me to one of the college students who lived in his house, who was the great crush of my teenage years. Um, mm -hmm. So that wasn't a bad thing. But I did not have a, a support group. I didn't go to uh, the counseling center at Vassar. I should have. I didn't have friends I could confide, I felt I could confide in. My world really turned around the second semester. I met my the people who became my two best friends, Doug and Leslie. We were a trio and remained best friends through college and we're still very good friends to this day. And that really changed my how I felt about myself and what I thought about myself. And I got past that that first semester crisis and was then out, if not comfortably so, but mm -hmm. but but out. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't. I really. Would, I wouldn't wish my childhood on anybody, but I wouldn't be who I am if not for my childhood. So yeah, yeah. That, I totally relate to, to a lot of that. And in, and even if it's just one or two people to kind of be those guide rails to like help me get through that process in my twenties mm -hmm. uh, or whatever, you know, that part, part of life, that self-discovery to be like, Oh no, this is who you are. This is, you know, to kind of like be a sounding block sometimes even. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So between with, with Doug and Leslie as my friends, and then I had a larger friend group uh, through them. It was uh, a completely different experience from, from the first semester of college. I look back now and think that I was I was say dangerous. I wasn't dangerous, but I was at, at, at high risk, at great risk, having had a parent who killed themselves and I was depressed and going through what I was going through, trying to come to terms with being gay. It was a, it was, it was uh, dangerous. And I feel lucky to have gotten through that period without uh, harming myself. I think it's important to, to say this and to have this conversation because for those of us that when we see someone, because we, I think at some point in our lives, you know, we know that the suicide rate for LGBTQ and I youth is higher than that of, of the average child, also homelessness and, you know, the things that take place. And yeah. so for the opportunity that when we get to see, and we also, I mean, we could talk about how we lost a whole generation of LGBT, especially gay men to the AIDS crisis, that some of these people that would be there to look out for, for others, to help guide those, that there's part of that population that's missing. And so there's almost an extra burden on all of us to look out for one another and to be there and to help out when we see somebody who's maybe drifting off a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I often hear from, and since I, because of my work, I have often heard from young LGBTQ people over the years. And the first thing I do is get them connected with organizations in their community, with PFLAG, with a local LGBTQ community group for kids. I urge them to find a responsible adult they can speak with because the worst thing is isolation, not having someone to talk to so that you're only talking to, to the person in your head. 
I mean, I often these, these emails would come in saying, I have never told anyone I'm gay. You're the first person I've ever discussed this with. Mm-hmm. And that scares me to death. I don't want that responsibility. And I can't be a counselor to each of those people. So my goal always is to get that person who's writing to me, whether, and they've been as young as 11, yeah. getting them into the hands of a responsible adult who can then, whether it's a parent or a relative or a teacher they trust yeah. or a mental yeah. health professional. Yeah. Yeah. An aunt or an uncle, who, you know, whoever that, that is, it's, uh, I, it's I essential. Know, yeah. yeah. It's just, I, I can think about that in the, the years of my life where, where it was so, I'm so grateful looking back upon it that I had that person, whether even a, for me, it was a grandmother as well. But you, know, you mentioned about coming out. When did you come out to your mother? You know, it's so interesting being asked questions because I, I did do this for a living and I, and I interviewed so many people about their memories and then I get annoyed with them when they, they get the years wrong. And I can't, I think it was 1977 that I came out to my mother, the summer of 77, when I was 18. And it was, I didn't do it well. I can tell you exactly how how one should come out to a parent, ideally. I didn't do it that way. And I had dropped hints. And um, my mother, I, I, I told my mother I was, I was heading out to visit a friend. And um, she said, how's he doing? I said, oh, he seems really depressed. I think he might be gay. And she said, well, you say that so casually. And then she said, oh my God, maybe it's because you're gay. And I said, bye. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eric, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I left and I went to my friend's house and I said, oh my God, my mother's asked me if I'm gay. What am I going to do? And he knew I was gay. And uh, I went home late and uh, crept up the stairs and hoped my mother wouldn't hear me creeping up the steps. And she she did. And she, she wants to talk to me. And she said, is it true? And I said, yes, I'm gay. And she said, I, I said, do you feel guilty? Because I'd read, some, I'd read a little bit by then about, about parents and how they react to their gay kids. She said, no, I don't feel guilty. She said, I'm disappointed. Oh, buddy. Uh-oh. I wish she had felt guilty. Yeah. Um, because I was the kind of best little boy in the world who tried never to disappoint anyone, especially my mother. Yeah. And she said that she wanted me to see a psychiatrist. And I just assumed she wanted me to see a psychiatrist so that I would get cured. And I said, I'll go to a psychiatrist if you go to a PFLAG meeting. <gasps> and she said, no. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so 13 years later, she joined PFLAG. And oh, it was, it was uh, not quite as many years later when I started seeing a therapist. But it was many years before we talked about it. And I came to understand that she was concerned uh, for my mental health. She thought I was depressed, which I was, and afraid that, that I'd kill myself like my father did, which is why she wanted me to see a psychiatrist. Mm. But our ability to communicate wasn't great. And we both missed each other on that one. Hmm. You, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, hearing you talk about your family dynamics and then thinking about maybe some of the family dynamics that I have with people, you know, sort of in different generations. Communication, obviously, we know today is so is so important. And it's key yeah. for us to be able to to do that. But there's times where I look back at, you know, my life, my childhood growing up where there's things that happened to me where I wasn't in good communication with my parents or my parents kept things from me. Is that like a generational thing or is that just how like people just didn't talk about problems or people didn't talk about their things? Like, Why do you think people hold information from each other? Because it, I mean, it sounds like if you were able to talk about all of those things with your mom or, you know, she was able to express, you know, what she was feeling, maybe you could have saved yourself, you know, that 10 or 13 years of, you know, having that awkwardness between each other. Yeah, we both could have. We both would have benefited from that. I'm forgetting, Anthony. Are you from Indiana or it's no? Jeff? So I'm from Chicago. Jeff's okay, from you're, Indiana. Yeah, you're both Midwestern, so you yeah. know how Midwesterners are. So I think it, it can be cultural, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's also generational. Um, I my uh, longtime partner is is from the Midwest, and I remember the first dinner I went to 27 years ago, and it's a large family. He's the oldest of eight, so mm-hmm. eight kids, parents, some spouses. And you could hear the, all you could hear was the silverware. No one said anything. Um, so this, they're not great communicators. They've gotten better. Yeah. Um, Jewish families tend to be, and it's one of the reasons my partner likes my family so much is because <laughs> what's on the lung is on the tongue. People mm-hmm. say everything, but I think it's gener- it was generational with my, with my family and also the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, homosexuality was taboo. And my mother knew very little about homosexuality and just like suicide was taboo. Nobody spoke about it. 
Yeah, I think, well, I mean, in some, and in some respects, too, with suicide, I mean, in some respects, that really hasn't even changed today because, uh, you know, myself, I've had a family member commit suicide and it's talked about, but it's not talked about. You know, it's kind of like it happened and it's, it's moved on. So it's interesting how some things sort of, you know, we've evolved in being able to have those conversations and some things we still, we're still working on trying to get there. Yeah, um, homosexuality, I found people are, are perfectly comfortable talking about. Invariably, people will, if it, if it comes up, what I do and, and my work, and, and I specialize in, in gay issues or LGBTQ issues, it's, as it's called now, um, invariably people will say they've got a gay relative or a gay kid, and it's, it's, not, it's no big deal. But suicide is still, it's still spoken of in whispers Yeah, um, quite often. Eric, so after college, did you, so did you have an intention when you went away to school of what you wanted to do and be? accomplish? I, yes. Um, I wanted to do something I knew I couldn't do. I was very interested in electoral politics, but I knew that since I was gay, that was out of the question. There were no, at least nobody at a, at a, in New York City, the no city council people, nobody. There were some people elected at the state level in other states in the early 70s. But in New York City, when I graduated from college, that wasn't possible. I was mostly focused on architecture and urban planning. That was my keen interest. And after college, went to work for an urban planning firm, discovered I didn't really like the profession very much, and then went to work for an architect, Philip Johnson, who was one of the famous 20th century architects who was gay, uh, closeted, um, although I knew he was gay and he had a, a, a partner. And I, then I discovered I didn't like architecture, the practice of architecture very much, um, and started doing some freelance writing and loved seeing my byline and I loved writing and I shouldn't say I loved writing. I loved having the capacity to express myself in print. Mm. And so I decided I was really torn for graduate school. I was out for three years before I went to graduate school. I thought of doing, what I did is I tried out lots of different jobs. I had enough money for, uh, for one year of graduate school. My dad was, was a World War II veteran. And because he was, he had his first breakdown during the war and was treated by the VA when he killed himself, in fact, I, I joke, a lot to joke about suicide if, if, um, if you've been through it with a family member, <laughs> just saying, um, <laughs> uh, because some people might be horrified by that, that the one good thing that came out of my father's suicide was that his death was deemed war-related and his survivors were entitled to GI benefits. So that paid for half of Vassar College, which I could never have afforded without that. And then I had one year of scholarship money left that would pay for tuition, not for living expenses, but I think it was $10,000. And so I wanted, I knew I could do a one-year program in graduate school, and Columbia University had a journalism program for, in one year, it, and I applied and got in and went to, went to journalism school. Hmm. Um, but still thinking I might do politics afterwards. So I got a job right after graduate school working for a politician as an assistant press sec secretary in Queens, New York. I went back to my old neighborhood for a, a politician with the borough president of Queens. Um, in those days, New York City had still has borough presidents, but in those days, the borough presidents had power. They no longer do. The city charter has been changed. And I lasted six weeks. I couldn't stand it. I had to go back in the closet to go to work there because yeah. it was like the 1960s in Queens. Queens is, uh, at least a lot of Queens then was very different from Manhattan, where I was living by then. And so, and I'd worked in magazine publishing just before graduate school. And my former boss called me every week and said, tired of being in Queens? Want to make more money? <laughs> and he, he wanted me to come work for him on a startup uh, for something called Computer Industry Daily. It was going to be the first online publication for the computer industry. I had no interest in computers. I had worked for that company uh, for a year before graduate school. It was a great experience, and I loved magazines, but I could care less about computers. Uh, but every week he called, and by the sixth week, when I think he offered me $30,000 a year, which mm -hmm. was an enormous amount of money wow. for, for mm -hmm. someone like me in... 1984. I quit my job uh, and went to work for Ziff Davis Publishing and worked on the first online publication for the computer publishing industry. And we, it was a year-long startup, and we were killed the day before we were set to launch. Oh. Um, we were all given a nice settlement package, and I used that money to write the proposal for my first book. The Male Couple's Guide, Finding a Man, Making a Home, Building a Life. I was in my late 20s when I wrote the proposal. Um, my then partner and I had been together for three years when I came up with the idea. We were trying to figure out what to do as a couple. You know, who does the dishes? Um, how do you get life insurance? All of the things that that no one taught us. And, I, yeah. I mean, and I just want to pause for a second. Like, this is 1988. 
Uh, it was it, 85 when I started work on the book. Mm. Oh, okay. Do I think it was, it, I had read it, it was published in 88. It was you published know? in 88. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm th- which, I mean, which makes sense. I mean, that was a lot to, uh, to build. And as, as a kid, I felt like that the kids, like my first day of school, the kids showed that they were there the day before. And they were given the owner's manual on how school was going to go. <laughs> yes. And, and, and yes. I kind of feel like I relate to you talking about with this. It's like, what an endeavor. And and, and I know I've, I've read some quotes from you where you talk about that your desire was to write the books you wished had been on the shelves when you were a kid. Yeah. And uh, and I think about, you know, for myself, there was a cafe at the Barnes & Noble in, in, uh, in Mishawaka, South Bend, Indiana. And my parents would drop me off there. And, you know, I would go to the cafe. But really, what I was really most interested in was the the magazine section had a little bit of LGBT content for magazines. Right, right. And you know, in, in the, the section that was where your book would have been at, that shelf now is, is in a whole section where it was before it was just a one little shelf, you know? So what I've always been inspired with people that we talk to is like, when I meet someone who realizes that there's something missing or that they're craving something that they create it, was that kind of like your experience? I mean, from everything you've, you've done? Yeah, um, I wanted to write, once I started writing books, I decided, or once I settled on that I was going to write books, I wanted to write the books that I wished had been on the shelves when I was a kid. But I can, I'll, I'll take credit for the first book, which was, was my idea, although I had, uh, encouragement from, from other people. I didn't want to stay in books and I wanted to work in mainstream journalism. So when I finished the manuscript for, for the male couple's guide, I, I had interviewed before I started work on that book and I landed a job at Good Morning America at ABC. Was there a year, got fired from that job, long story, and then uh, got hired right away by CBS Morning News. I was, it was always a struggle for me. I didn't feel that my gay work was good or as good as straight journalism. So it was my internalized homophobia. I didn't want to work in a marginalized field. And as a gay journalist in those years, there were limits on what I, what I could do. Well, that's what I was going to say, Amy, is, is it that for those of us that maybe are a little bit younger, not meaning my, like younger than myself and Anthony, that you were limited, you know, what you could do. Yeah. Where there, was a, there was a glass ceiling that, you know, we talk about shattering those, but this one was pretty thick, you know? Well, I can tell you that, that when I was at CBS News, um, I very quickly discovered I was a segment producer. So I was a behind the scenes guy. The people who had the most fun and earned a better living were the people on the other side of the camera. And mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do. But I was out by then. Uh, my publisher helped me come out to everybody at CBS News because when The Male Couple's Guide was published in February of 1988, and I'd started in January at CBS News, my publisher sent a copy of The Male Couple's Guide to every single person at CBS News without telling me. So I came in and I was out to my my colleagues uh, in my department, but um, and I was the only out person on the editorial side. The book was on every desk at the office, so there was no going back. But a few months in, I asked for a meeting with a senior executive who had gone to Vassar as well, which is how I got the meeting, um, because I wanted to know if CBS News would ever put an out gay person on the other side of the camera. Hmm. So we had a meeting, and she was not inclined to answer me directly. And I said, after after a lot of hemming and hawing on her part, I said, I'd like to know for my career. It's important for me to know. Would you put an openly gay person on camera as a news as a news person? She said, "No, we wouldn't." So it was around that time that I was contacted by an editor friend at Harper and Row, now Harper Collins, who asked me if I would consider writing a proposal for what became my book, Making Gay History. So that's how I came to turn down a four-year contract with CBS News, and so I was on a six-month contract. And took a risk because he had asked for a proposal. He didn't guarantee he was going to buy the book, but he asked me to write an oral history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, then the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. And I left to write that book. And after that, I had decided I would write the books that I wished had been on the shelves. Oh, do you know what? I'm getting my story wrong. Because when I was at Good Morning America, I started, we had clip files in those days, newspaper clips on every subject. I started working on my book about suicide when I was working at, at Good Morning America. So that I started researching in 1987. It wasn't published until the early 90s. So yes, to answer your question, I wanted to write the books that weren't on the shelves <laughs> when I was a kid. For multiple issues, you know, just, just LGBT issues, but obviously for suicide, the things that were not being talked about. Yes, yes. Yeah. We'll talk, you know, I want to talk about suicide a little bit more here in a minute, but the title for Making History, the original title was Making History, The Struggle for Gay and Lesbian Equal Rights, an oral history, right? correct? Yep, that's the title. Well, and actually, and I left out the important part, which is from 1945 to 19, 1990. Right. You know, there was something wonderful that happened a couple of years ago with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And what I found was, is that at least like in my, my community in Chicago and some of the other ones that I witnessed online is that 
people dug deeper into what took place at Stonewall. And I started hearing stories of things that, you know, that I wasn't aware of, of the, the ancestors that came before me. And so it's almost like we, we moved it back to 1969. And in your book, you took it before, back to 1945. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah. And I, and I, and I just, uh, I have benefited so much from your, your, your work now from helping me now to learn more, to, to understand more. And, and I just really want to thank you for, for, for what you've done with that. Oh, it's kind of you to say, I knew nothing when I started working my book. In fact, I said to the editor who asked me to write the proposal, I don't know anything about this subject. Hmm. And don't you want to have an academic write this? And he said, no, I actually want somebody who's fresh to the subject who will write a book that people will read. And um, he said, I want an oral history like Studs Terkel uh, wrote the book Working. Studs Terkel was a famous oral historian. When I started my work, I thought that the movement began at Stonewall, which it didn't. I marked the beginning at, at 1950, the founding of the Mattachine Society, which is an organization that continued right on through the early 70s in multiple chapters across the country. Although the first organization founded in the U.S. was in 1924 in Chicago, short-lived. Uh, it was broken up by the police. But the first gay rights organization in the world was founded in 1897 in Germany, in Berlin, mm -hmm. by Magnus Hirschfeld. So we have a long, long history. I knew nothing about it. Um, and even Stonewall, I knew just a little bit about when gay people fought back against police. But I missed, I missed all of that. I was, I was too young in 69 to know what was going on and really only learned our history when I wrote that book. But boy, what a proud history we have and what interesting people um, who led our movement, who got us started and what brave people who decided to challenge the, the, the status quo at a time when there was no guarantee that anything would be accomplished other than losing their jobs, their families, and even their homes. you know, looking back at this uh, experience in writing the book. So how did you come up with the list of people on who to, to reach out to and who to interview? Well, there was no internet, there was no Google, there was no timeline of the movement. So right. I sat, uh, by then I was living in San Francisco, I sat in the library of the GLBT Historical Society, which was called something else then, and went through every issue of The Advocate from 1968 until 19, it was the late 1980s, to build a timeline. I also went through the Mattachine Review, another magazine, The Ladder, which was the, uh, the magazine of the Daughters of Belitis, and one magazine. These all dated back to the 1950s. And I built a timeline, and I came across names. One of the challenges of doing an oral history when you're trying to tell a larger story is that each of the stories, each of the people I featured, had to move the story along to another stage. I also needed to have, a, have diverse voices and had to have both women and men. And the movement, certainly in the early days, was more male than female and almost all white, um, and all generally people who are pretty privileged. I used um, index cards um, for all the people I spoke with. I wound up interviewing 89 people before I realized, and probably had chosen those 89 out of about 200 on my list. And I thought I'd interview 200, but I ran out of time. So I interviewed 89 people and then thought, oh my God, if I don't start transcribing these interviews, I'm never going to finish. And then I, I transcribed all my own interviews. And then if I thought, and they were all, they were three to six hours in length. So I got mm. terrible tendonitis. I don't transcribe anything anymore. <laughs> and when I got to about 47, 46 interviews, I thought, well, if I don't stop now, I'm never going to edit, have time to edit the interviews. So I wasn't, if I'd had 10 years to do the book, it would have been more organized. Um, but mm. I needed X number of people to be able to tell this larger story using their stories to move the history along. Mm. The book isn't as diverse as I wish it could have been geographically and otherwise. Um, but I think that you get a, especially the first book where each person is a chapter, you get a real sense of these people's lives and what they did and the growth of the movement over the course of the book. I didn't think I'd ever revisit the book, but I ran out of things to do and uh, decided that I would go back and revisit the book I had intended when I wrote the book the first time to use the timeline as the narrative and intercut the stories so that it was more cinematic, but I didn't have the skill to do it or the time. So the first edition is just each chapter is a person. And in some ways, I think that's a better book. Hmm. So I took, I was going to take a, a six months to add 10 years and rewrite the book. And it took a year and a half. The second book we called Making Gay History, because by then there was no issue about having the word gay in the title. With the first edition, we were a little concerned that the sales force at HarperCollins might have trouble selling a book with the word gay in the title, and that bookstores would be reluctant to place the book face out on shelves if it had the word gay in the title. By, by 2002, nobody cared. The world had yeah. changed a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious. So I would guess that most of the people who you reached out to to interview because of uh, their involvement in the movement and what they did with their own, you know, with their own lives, they probably didn't have a problem, you know, wanting to sit down with you to be interviewed. Was there anyone who you reached out to that said no? That they didn't want to be interviewed? Everyone wanted to be interviewed. Two people asked me not to use their real names. Yeah. One person who I was pursuing, who kept saying he would be interviewed, Gary Studs, who was a, uh, one of two congressmen, gay congressmen, the first two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barney Frank was the other one. And I saw Gary on a number of occasions. He'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to get, get you on the calendar. <laughs> and uh, no, never got Gary Studs on the calendar. So no. Sounds I, like a politician. The, <laughs> yeah, he's the only one who I never... I was never able to interview. Um, I did interview Barney Frank, but he was determined not to tell me anything personal. And at some mm. point in the interview, he said, you might as well stop trying because I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm saving it for my biography. Mm. It was a very frustrating interview. And consequently, he's not, not in the book because all of the stories had to be personal as well as... Uh, I, I, it wasn't, I didn't want a book that just talked, talked about this date, that date, this happened, that happened. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know about people's lives. And Barney Frank was not going to was not going to, I tried every which way, um, but I could have been a shoe sitting in the chair across from him and he would have been, he would have given the same interview. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, what you did was you created a memoir for the people who you interviewed, looped that into the history to, yes. you know, the gay history movement. It's, yeah. uh, it's interesting when you said that you had to dissect the timeline. So there's so many of us, like, I, you know, myself, when I went to college, I took, you know, some queer studies classes. And I remember learning about the Medicine Society and, you know, the, the, the other parts of the movement. But I guess it really wasn't until recent history, until you know, someone like yourself and, you know, some other people had to sit down and really sort of compile the timeline to put it together because so much of so much of the history was just an oral representation. Nothing was yeah, documented. It was, it was an archi- archives with with publications that were were available at the time. There was one book that I depended on heavily, John D'Amelio's book, but he wrote a lot about that period. So I I used his book as a roadmap. But interestingly, I found in talking to some of the people he wrote about they were very upset with him because he wrote about what they did through a more contemporary lens and and could be pretty judgmental about them and refer to people as accommodationists without really giving the reader a sense of what the time was like in which these people lived and how compromised they were in what they could do given the danger. I learned a lot from letting people tell me their stories and what their experiences were at the time. And I tried very hard not to judge based on what the world was like in the 1980s when I grew up, mm. because the world in the 1940s and 50s was and 60s was yeah. so dramatically different. Yeah. yeah. It's a, you, you went on after that to do a little bit of different writing. You got into some autobiographies, right? Yes. I wrote f- uh, five um, sports autobiographies. I really don't care about sports. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I've done so. But I, I wrote about sports that were slightly gay. I, I wrote about diving. I shouldn't say slightly gay. Um, but um, I wrote Greg Luganis's autobiography, um, which was a highlight of my of my career. Um, other than making gay history, it was a number one New York Times bestseller for weeks, and it just it was one of those media storms that uh, you read about. But I was in the middle of, and it was it was. It was thrilling and a little terrifying. And I also wrote Rudy Galindo's autobiography. Rudy was a U.S. figure skating champion. I worked with Robbie Rogers on his autobiography. He was an out uh, soccer player, a professional soccer player. There was a fourth. I don't think there were five. It was four. Um, There was another one that I I ghosted. And um, I will never tell anyone uh, what book that was because it was a terrible book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and we're not going to ask what the book was, but thank you for sharing that because I, I didn't know that. And just to know, like for all of us to know that, you know what, that every now and then, like one doesn't go the way we think it's going to go, but you, you gave it, a, you know, you went out there and you, you did your thing, you know? So thanks for sharing well, that. Well, well, I was, you know, I needed money. Um, I remember calling my agent from the house of the person, the, the people I was working with. And I said, Jed, is there any way for me to get out of this? He said, yeah, you have to write a check and pay back what you've been paid. Oh. And, and I was newly single and had just moved back to New York and I was broke. And so I did what I, I you know, I did it. And it was, uh, and I made sure my name wasn't on it. So it was exactly the book that the people who were paying me wanted. I didn't think it served them well, but they were not interested in, in, uh, in what I had to say. The thing, when you hire someone to work on your book, when you're doing a, an autobiography, I did another one, by the way. I ghosted a politician's autobiography, another terrible book. You, what you're really hiring them for is, is to, 
to help you tell your story and also to let you know what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're not using them for that purpose, you're wasting your money. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that. I think any sort of service industry, you know, uh, profession. So uh, I know myself for many years, I've worked uh, as a service provider um, in the event planning world. And, you know, I, I could correlate and say the same thing. It's like, if you're going to hire the professional to come in to help you execute whatever project it is that you're working on, and you don't want to listen to them, it it becomes challenging. It also strains, you know, it makes the working relationship not great. And I, I mean, I can understand not wanting to either have your name associated with the project or being dis- disengaged with it because you're not performing to your best ability. Yeah, if you don't want to. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the, the joy of working with um, Robbie Rogers and Greg Luganis in particular was that they really trusted me. And the challenge for an autobiographer when you're writing someone else's story is to write in their voice. For whatever reason, I'm good at it. I really uh, cut my teeth on making gay history because each story had to be written in the voice of the person I interviewed. And Robbie and Greg both gave me the room in which to do my best work with them. And I think both books demonstrate that. Just wanted to echo on both those books that that I personally experienced a ripple effect from from those books you wrote. I remember with Greg's book, I think it was was that mid-90s. And I just remember showing up at church on Sunday and just hearing about that being talked in the fellowship hall in the whispers, right? And 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 I was observing because I realized that it it was kind of giving language to what I was feeling inside of me, which was a same-sex attraction. And even though it wasn't necessarily positive things, people were talking about Greg. They were talking about his story because of what you, how you had so wonderfully done it. And wow. it gave me something to just to kind of like, to kind of like take notes quietly in the corner, you know, and be like, I'm going to find out more about this Greg guy. What I've discovered about doing the, the work that I've done is you never know what impact your, your books will have on people. Right. I, I was at an event for the Stonewall Museum in, in Fort Lauderdale. And there was a guy, an usher, who stopped me on the way out. And he said, you wrote The Male Couples Guide, didn't you? And I said, yes, I did. He said, my husband and I bought your book when it was published in 1988. We took it on a camping trip, and we each highlighted the sections that we thought were important. And then we compared notes. And we think we've had a successful relationship now, 30 years on, because we read your book. Wonderful. That, that's <laughs> and this is just a couple of years ago. I was shocked. Yeah. You mentioned uh, how you had gotten out of a relationship and then... I was thrown out, yes. Yeah. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, I was, I was asked to leave. But to, today, um, I just want to acknowledge that you've been with, you, with your partner and you are engaged. For, you've been together for how many years? 27. 27 years. We had a commitment ceremony um, at a time when you couldn't get married uh, 25 years ago. It'll be 25 years in June. We had, we, when you have, as an event planner, you know, yeah. when you invite people, there's a yield. Mm-hmm. And we were told to expect 75% of the invitations. We sent, uh, we invited 200 people. 215 came. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, uh, any number of my relatives said, well, we've, I've been to bar mitzvahs, I've been to weddings, I've never been to anything like this. Yeah. So they, they all came. It was wonderful. And my partner's parents were still alive. My mother was alive. My grandmother was alive. We had aunts and uncles. And it was wonderful. So we, we did that then. So we haven't exactly rushed to get married, although that is coming. Ah, congratulations. Thank yeah, you. You, you know, it's interesting, Eric. So I was sort of at the forefront of the passing of marriage equality and being in the event industry, specifically focusing on weddings at the time, you know, uh, I guess seen as a, an industry leader uh, in Chicago uh, with the company that I have, watching that, uh, what you said about the yield of invitations. So huh. I was working with probably, so I was probably doing like 15 to 20 weddings a year. Out of that, I was probably at once marriage equality uh, had passed. Um, I think I probably was working with like six to eight gay couples or queer couples um, out of that 20, 15 to 20. And every time I would attest to this, that every time I would see that yield would be much higher on that RSVP return because oh. people really, I, so I think it was in twofold. I think, you know, people wanted to show their support because right. they never experienced, you know, anything like this, that, that they've seen the 
person in their life that they love so much, you know, now being able to share in this uh, part of life that they weren't able to share with, you know, their partner before uh, in a public way. So I feel like they people wanted to come and show their support. And then also too, what I was learning was people didn't know what to expect. So I think right. people were curious to come to see, you know, is there going to be a drag queen performing the ceremony? <laughs> like, right. What what right. what does that look like for for the first, you know, I would say for the first four or five years after that, you know, the passing happened, it really was, we really saw that even when Jeff and I got married, we were surprised at how many more people, you know, came to our wedding. So um, it's interesting that you say that, you know, that you did that 25 years ago and just, you know, five years ago, you know, six years ago, we saw sort of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, we were very surprised um, and we had it at home. So although the ceremony was in the, the garden of the church across the, from the street from where we live, but we had, we had two more than 200 people at our house um, wow. for, for a buffet, which yeah. by the time we got into the house after, after greeting everybody, there was nothing left. Laughter and love, right? <laughs> so. Nothing left, but, um, but it was, it was a wonderful experience, a wonderful yeah. experience. We don't plan to repeat that. Yeah. I, 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 we haven't talked about what we're going to do yet, but I think we'll quietly elope. Mm. Yeah. That was what Anthony wanted to do originally. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people, how many people did you have in the end? About one seventy. Uh huh. That's not yeah. eloping. No. <laughs> and it was a whole weekend worth of festivities. So oh yeah. boy, yeah. us too. Us too. Yeah. 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 So Eric, I just wanted to make sure we just uh, talk about suicide for a minute. You you went on to get involved with the Suicide Foundation a little while after. Yeah. So what happened was um, I wrote a book about suicide called Why Suicide? Questions and Answers about Suicide, Suicide Prevention, and Coping with the Suicide of Someone You Know. It was my way of, of investigating that topic. And by then I was in therapy. I've been with my therapist for 29 years, soon wrapping up, I believe, uh, before our 30th anniversary. So I wrote, uh, wrote the book and, um, and thought I was pretty much done with it by then. And then just before my 50th birthday, my partner's sister killed herself. Um, this is 12 years ago. And I was thrown sideways, really devastated. And it brought back everything. And I was really upset that I had not been able to do anything to prevent it. You know, this is, this is often the case people think in the aftermath, what if, and why didn't I do something? And I revisited my book and th thought I should read it. And I thought it wasn't as good as it needed to be. Um, I read it for myself, but then I thought this needs work. And I, Got my, my agent to convince my publisher to let me do a new edition. And I went to an event called International Survivors of Suicide Law Day just a few weeks after my sister-in-law took her life because I needed help. I needed to be with other people. And um, from there, I got involved with the organization, wound up serving on the board for four years, and then went to work for the organization for a year and a half, rebuilding all of their programs for people who had uh, lost someone to suicide. And that was a chance to really deal with my experience, I got to sit in on support groups. I'd never been to a support group for people who lost someone to suicide. And it was very, very meaningful, uh, very meaningful work. And then long story short, I got fired from that job. And that's what propelled me back to making gay history. Uh, my, you haven't, uh, you haven't asked, but I'm going to launch into it. I had turned over my entire uh, uh, collection to the New York Public Library in 2008, including all of my audio, uh, 300 hours worth. And with an agreement that they digitized the entire collection which they did by 2015, around the time I was fired. And I was trying to figure out what to do next at age 55 when no one wants to hire you. And I uh, had a number of conversations about what I might do with my archive. And one of the people I met, actually two people who had an organization called uh, History Unerased, unerased.org. They, they develop LGBTQ inclusive American history curricula. They were very interested in short excerpts of my audio for resources for teaching about our history as part of the American history curriculum, the 8th and 11th grade. I asked one of my neighbors who I knew had worked for the BBC and, and worked for local NPR if she could cut tape. And she started editing. She said yes. And she started editing. And she said, this sounds like a podcast. And long story short, I got a grant um, and we launched the podcast five weeks later. Wow. And here we are four years later, four million downloads later, 90 episodes it's been so rewarding to go back to this work and to approach it in a way where I don't feel that it's less than. I think by now I've gotten over my most of my internalized homophobia, um, and the world is also more ready for this material. It's been it's been so thrilling to work with educators, um, as I have now done, to bring this uh, material into the classroom so that mm. kids, people like us who are now young, 
unlike us, can um, <laughs> learn about this history through the voices of the people who actually lived it. Yeah. I am just so grateful that you recorded these, first of all, that, you know, because these, a lot of these people today um, are no longer with us. A handful are still alive. I just talked to Kayla Husen last night. Uh, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen are two of the key uh, movement leaders from the 1960s and 70s. Um, Kay is 91, um, but almost everybody I interviewed, interviewed is dead. And a lot of them died. A lot of the men died soon after I interviewed them because they had AIDS. Uh, so when I started work on my book in 88, I made a list of, of the men I knew I wanted to interview who I knew uh, were ill. Two in particular I interviewed I didn't know were ill, Randy Schultz and Morty Manford. Yeah, these stories would have been lost to time, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of them, if not for for these recordings. I just never expected that. When I did the interviews, I thought that someday someone might want to uh, use this archive, which is why I use broadcast quality equipment to record the interviews. But I never expected that I would be the person to mine my own archive. Yeah. Uh, and I just feel so lucky that, that I had that opportunity. Um, and there were so many people who were angels along the way. Um, Sarah Burningham, who came up with the idea of the, po of the podcast, just brilliant. She was our founding editor and producer. And she has jumped back on board. She stepped away because she does other work. She's jumped back on board to produce our upcoming eight season, which we'll be doing in the spring, which is going to be a complicated season because it's going to be the history through my personal lens and bringing mm. in stuff from the archive too. Yeah. So, When is that coming out, Eric? Um, we'll be launching it, uh, I hope, in June. Okay. So people have got some, some time right now between now and then. Obviously, you've got uh, eight seasons that have come out. If, if someone were to start, you know, with season one, is there, you know, I know, I'm just thinking to myself. But, you you know, know what my answer is going to be. I want people to start with episode number one yeah. <laughs> with, with the preview, but you don't have to. I, I, one of the seasons that I think is really um, important to, to, to listen to early on because Stonewall is so often cited as central to our movement. It is a, an important pivot point, but we did a whole season on uh, the Stonewall Uprising. It's a document. We did it as a documentary, an audio documentary over three or uh, three parts and uh, four parts. Listen to the to the Stonewall season. You can dip into different seasons at different times um, and just pick and choose if you like. Well, um, and, and actually, I'm just gonna just gonna, I just want to pause for a second because what I was going to say to the audience is, is these stories are so well done, but they're so they're, they're, they're short form and, and you can just go from one to the other and just, just kind of dance through it. I, I listened to Wendell uh, Sayers interview recently and I thought about, cause I have family in Denver and I mean, I picture you like out, like trudging the road. Like you went to Denver to interview this, this gentleman, just in understanding that because what Anthony and I do is telling stories today, you know, you're in New York, we're here in LA, we just dial into to Zencaster or whatever audio recording we're using. You know, you're, you're, you were hiking it, you were huffing it and, and how you found these people, you know, and Wendell, I believe was, was one of the people that you mentioned earlier that didn't really use his, his name for a long time. Is that correct? He asked me, uh, yeah, he asked to be, uh, for a pseudonym. I called him Paul Phillips in the book. Um, and I had to make a decision when we did, did an episode about him about whether or not to reveal who he was. But I, I, and he's long dead. He was in his mid-80s when I interviewed him. But I decided that based on what I knew about him, that he would want people to really know his story. Mm -hmm. He was afraid at the time that his relatives in Western Kansas would find out that he was gay and be embarrassed by him. But I, um, he's also, he's a cousin of Gail Sayers, the uh, famous football player. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that people, that he would want his story told using his real name. I hadn't intended to interview him. I had planned to interview a man named Elver Barker, who was involved. I read about him. He was involved in the Manishing Society in the 1950s in Denver. There was a convention of the Manishing Society of chapters from across the country in Denver in 59. And when I spoke with Elver by phone, because I interviewed everyone by phone or spoke with them by phone before setting up an appointment, he said, oh, I've got this, this guy named Wendell Sayers. You should, you should give him a call. We had a falling out. We haven't talked in years. You might find his story interesting. Well, Wendell Sayers was an African-American man who was the first attorney, first black attorney to work for the state attorney general in Colorado and got involved in the Madison Society in the 1950s. Yes, I was very interested in interviewing him. But poor, poor Elver Barker. Sorry, Elver, he's not in the book. Um, because I didn't, I didn't need two stories about the Manishing Society in, in Denver in the 1950s. And Wendell's story covered a lot of ground. His story moved me more than almost any other story because he was so alone um, in his mm -hmm. mid-80s. And as I was leaving his house, and I say this in the podcast, he asked me um, one question. He said, do you think it's too late for me to meet somebody? And I lied and said, it's never too late. But I knew from how he lived, that he that he was out to no one at that point. Um, he had been out to two guys in his church, but both died of AIDS. Yeah. I knew he would he would likely spend the rest of his life alone. Yeah. 
So I have all of these people in my head. It's um, uh, I hear their voices, and and I had this incredible experience um, about a year ago. Now we have a Making Gay History play. Now it's called Making Gay History Before Stonewall, and there are twenty characters, twenty people from the book in the play, and I got to see these young people. It's it's called documentary theater, where they or verbatim theater, where it's actual. It's it's the words as spoken by the people in the podcast. And I got to see them come back to life on stage. And then each of the 20 kids who were performing, this is at New York University um, at the uh, Provincetown Playhouse here in New York City, each of them played me. So that was mm -hmm. freaky. So it was, th it was thrilling. So I've gotten to write this story as a book, to do it as a podcast, and now to see it as a play. Uh, the first high school to perform this uh, play was the, was Deerfield High School in Deerfield, Illinois, oh, this yeah. past November. Yeah. So we're we're expecting to license the play to high schools all across the country. Wow. Thinking back to when you started on this journey in the 80s, I mean, would you ever imagine that, that these stories would be told on stage in high schools across the country? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And I have to tell you that when I saw the first performance of, of Making Gay History before Stonewall, I cried. No, I could never have imagined. And, yeah. and there was, we did two performances. There were 10 performances total in New York. Two of them were performances that high school students, middle and high school students were brought to see. And we had a Q&A with the kids after the show and to hear their questions and, and what this meant to them. It was, it was incredibly moving. I had a rough time growing up as a gay kid and I wouldn't wish that childhood on anyone. But if I hadn't had that childhood, if I hadn't grown up at the time that I did, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do the story, to do the work that I do so that the world would be a better place for kids growing up now. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's, it's been a, a huge opportunity and I'm one of the lucky gay men of my generation who didn't die. So I got to see this this work through, uh, meaning that I got to do to finish the book. I love to finish the book. And then I've lived long enough to see the world change enough that this work has been, I've been able to translate this work into other forms so yeah. that it can be used more broadly. It's a real, it's a real gift. I'm just curious, was there anyone who you ever interviewed where you were either nervous or starstruck to interview? Totally starstruck to interview Dear Abby. Mm. Uh, for, for younger listeners, uh, Dear Abby is what you would get if you took Ellen DeGeneres when everyone still loved Ellen and Oprah Winfrey and every YouTube influencer and wrapped them up in one. And you wouldn't even have anything close to who Dear Abby was. Dear Abby was the, was the most widely, along with her sister, twin sister, they were the two most widely read advice columnists in the world, read by millions of people every day. And so when I went to meet Dear Abby, who was an early, one of the earliest straight allies, I was totally smitten. Um, totally starstruck. And she opened the door to her house in Beverly Hills. And it was a double, the double height front, uh, front door in a French provincial third empire, crazy <laughs> LA kind of house. And there she was in, in, uh, lavender hostess pajamas and pink fluffy slippers and was all made up and her hair was done. And I, and I said, hello. And she said, hello. And I said, what should I call you? She said, just call me Abby. And she was as, uh, just totally lovely, totally lovely. I was a little starstruck meeting Ellen. Um, it was a different point in Ellen's career, and always meeting a celebrity is—you um, never know who you're going to get. But yeah. Ellen was was exactly who she was. She was herself, and in fact, she had thought that I was a reporter from the National Enquirer. She'd forgotten we had an appointment, and I awakened her from a nap, and she was in slippers and pajamas, and her hair was in every direction, and we had a great, great conversation. The Dear Abby interview you did. Is very very special, and I mean, I, I, as soon as I say that, I think of another one. You know, uh, some of the stuff with P, the P flag stories that you've been able to tell. Oh, Gene Manford, yes, yeah. But what I, what I do want to say though is, and I'm not going to give anything away from the Dear Abby interview, but what she did say at the end, she thanked you and she encouraged you to keep doing what you're doing. And yes. uh, and you know, Anthony and I just we're so grateful to you know to be able to have this time to sit down and get to know you a little bit better and, and just to personally say thank you for the work you've done and, and the work you continue to do to tell you know the stories of our gay ancestors that have begun the movement and then also to give us the, the, some of the younger ones you know a sense of a family to celebrate these people that you know that were rejected sometimes but then you know were brave and knew that they were right and as you talk about the world was wrong and I'm going to change the world so thank you so much for that well, it's, it's been a privilege doing it. And, and Jeff and Anthony, you both are doing this in your generation by recording stories and then sharing them via your podcast. So it's, uh, um, each generation gets to pick up the ball and carry it forward. And I feel like I've, I picked up the ball from, from, uh, Vito Russo and listened to the Vito Russo episode and you'll see what I'm talking about. I read his book, uh, The Celluloid Closet in 1981. 
when I was a temp worker at Harper and Row, the company that published my book seven years later, I picked up the ball from Vito and um, carried it forward. And now it's your turns, uh, Jeff and Anthony, to carry the ball forward and to hand it off to the next generation. Well, thanks again, Eric. It was so nice chatting with you. You didn't know you better. And we look forward to uh, the next season of Making Gay History coming out later, hopefully in June. Um, uh, well, um, I hope so. <laughs> you never know what'll <laughs> happen. We were supposed to do this a year ago, but then the pandemic intervened. So it'll, um, it'll come out when it's meant to come out, right? <laughs> it will. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for, for asking to speak with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Take care, Eric. Thank you. There's such a wealth of wisdom from Eric's interviews and conversations with our brave LGBTQIA ancestors. When you know the shoulders you stand on, it can inspire you to move forward with progress in mind. We want to thank Eric for helping fill the bookshelves and the airwaves with these stories. To learn more about Eric and to get connected to Making Gay History, check out his profile on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. On our website, you can also catch up on past episodes, learn more about our past guests, and browse their profiles. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store and browse our online bookstore curated with our guests' recommended books. Thanks again for listening, and remember, 